There is a great danger facing every believer. And it's a danger that most believers are, are not even aware of. They're not even conscious of, even though they may and are very likely participating in it. And the great danger facing every believer is satanic deception. But a deception not regarding blatant ungodliness, but false Christianity. From the beginning, the devil has been a liar, and his chief lie in the world today is false Christianity. It is not atheism, it is not liberalism, it is not communism, it isn't evolution, it is false Christianity. The devil's chief lie in the world today is false Christianity. That is to say, a religion of appearances that masks the works of the flesh. It's a very convenient religion for the unregenerate. Now, this religion is not located only within the cults, but I'm speaking of a religion that is found within evangelical churches throughout the land. It is fair to say most professing Christians in today's evangelical world have embraced Satan's religion. I don't say that with glee. I don't say that with vengeance. I say that with great grief. It's fair to say most professing Christians in today's evangelical world have embraced Satan's religion. In fact, they prefer it to biblical Christianity. Now, few Christian leaders or preachers want to talk about this. There's kind of a flowery notion about Christianity. They prefer, if it's working, to let it work. If the numbers are up, if the offerings have increased, if people appear relatively happy, then let it work. Let it happen. That is Satan's trap. So people prefer Satan's religion over and against biblical Christianity. They do not want to come to the light. And they do not want to come to the light, we're told in John chapter 3, because their deeds are evil. What they desire, and please hear me now, is a religious assurance which also allows for continued evil practices. Now, you may be a participant in this deception. In fact, again, I say with great grief and urgency, it is very likely that you are. And consequently, you are in grave danger. For God is not indifferent to Satan's counterfeit. Indeed, as we'll learn in today's text, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So let's consider carefully, therefore, the message of today's text. After all, it's not my message. It's the Apostles' message. And therefore, it belongs to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It is his message to us today. So let's look at our text. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, 
just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. End quote. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. Well, the Apostle speaks here with gentleness, simplicity, and great clarity. In our text, his concern is that his readers not be deceived. A question is the place of righteousness within Christian character and practice. Now, it is very important that you know that this text is about how the Christian lives, not merely what the Christian believes. John is not warning of alternative creeds and confessions. He is instead addressing Christian practice. That is to say, it is the Apostle's high concern regarding the measure of one's daily conduct. Is our daily practice that of righteousness, or do we practice sin? It's one of the two. It's one of those two things. That's what the Apostle is telling us. So let me ask you, does this question concern you today? We can begin by asking ourselves, what is the motivating principle within your character and conduct? Is it righteousness or sin? That's the question the Apostle sets before us. And he sets it before me as well as you. We are in this together. And John would not have us be deceived. There are only two options here. To practice righteousness or to practice sin. Now further into this letter, in chapter 5, John makes it clear precisely to whom he is writing and his purpose for doing so. And he says in John chapter 5, verse 13, He is writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that they may know they have eternal life. So do you believe in the name of the Son of God? And if you do, do you know you possess eternal life? That's John's concern. He wants you to know that. He wants you to possess the conviction and the joy and the delight in knowing that you possess eternal life. That's the goal of this text, that you may know you possess eternal life. So, we must press further here and ask the question, on what basis do you know you possess eternal life? Some might say, well, I've been baptized. Others will say, well, I've been confirmed. Others will say, well, I have uh, ord ordination credentials. Or I'm very active in the church board. On what basis do you know you possess eternal life? Let's look closer at our text. First, 
John tells us that this is an individual practice, for he states the one and not the group. This righteousness is not something you can do as part of the larger community. It is a righteousness practiced by the individual. He says the one who practices righteousness. So no individual can find assurance by merely being part of a righteous group. Each individual must show themselves righteous. And it is, quote, the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Righteousness in the Christian life is something we practice. It is something we do. It is not merely the one who says they are righteous, therefore, but the one who practices righteousness. Point two. This righteousness is practiced, uh, means the fact that it's practiced means the imputed righteousness of faith finds this working out into the character and practice of the one to whom it is imputed for justification. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Let me say that again. This righteousness of which John is speaking is practiced. It means that, that the imputed righteousness of faith finds itself working out into the character and the practice of the one to whom it is imputed for justification. It is not a dormant righteousness. The authorized version reads our text this way, He that doeth righteousness... This is a righteousness that the one does, and does continually. It is righteous action. It's not a hit or miss occasional doing of righteousness, but a defining trait of one's character. Let me now restate John's purpose in writing this letter. He is writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And he's writing to them that they may know they have eternal life. So, our text reveals this basis by which we may know we possess eternal life. And that is because we do or practice righteousness. Those who claim that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them on the basis of faith alone and therefore they are justified before God, must also show signs, display evidence of new life by doing righteousness. Third, point three. This is not an abstract righteousness. Rather, it is Christ's own righteousness being worked out in the believer. Just as he is righteous, says our text. The one who is righteous practices righteousness, even as he is righteous. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The first Adam is a man of sin. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, is the man of righteousness. 
and every person who has ever lived, is living, and ever will live, is either in the first Adam or the last Adam. John wants us to know that we are in the last Adam. He wants you to have the assurance that you are in the last Adam. The entirety, therefore, of the Christian's union with Jesus occurs within the context of the life of Christ in you. Consequently, the righteousness we practice is not our own righteousness. It is His righteousness. It involves the very life of Christ in you manifested in your daily conduct. John says it this way earlier in this letter. He says, By this we know we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's 1 John 2, 5-6. through six. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. End quote. There's nothing difficult to understand about that. If we say that we are in him, we ought to walk as he walked. That is to say, we ought to live as Jesus lived. We ought to think like he think. We ought to speak as he spoke. We ought to act as he acted. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's Galatians 2.20. So this is what it means then, Paul explains later in Galatians 5.16, to walk by the Spirit, to bear the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, the abiding principle is, is if you have the life of Christ in you, it will show up. It will manifest in your character and in your daily conduct. You will be practicing righteousness. You will be living like Christ lived. And how did Christ live? Well, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 tells us that he walked in um, anonymity. He didn't promote himself. He didn't advance himself. He was in it for himself. He walked in humility before God, in obedience, unconditional obedience. Listen, it is the Spirit of Christ in you that certifies you belong to Him. Romans 8, 9. And where His Spirit resides, there is active righteousness. The believer is to work out their salvation, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Is God at work in you? Then it will show up in your conduct, in your character in your daily life. We are justified by a righteousness not of our own. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. We need not accrue righteousness. We cannot 
truly accrue righteousness. We need righteousness, but it's not something that we can gain on our own through religious duties and observances and activities. Rather, we are justified by a righteousness not of our own, that is, Christ's righteousness. In the same way, we also live by that same righteousness. Saving faith is not a dead faith, but living faith by which the very life of Christ is manifested within the church and within each one in Christ. It's an individual manifestation as well as a collective when we're together. And that life, that life of Christ in you, virtually destroys the works of the devil today, just as during Christ's own life and ministry. Consequently, Christ's union with the believer is at work showing the love and holiness of God into the world, and thus destroying the work of the devil, not practicing it. Which brings us to our next point. Point four. The one who practices sin is of the devil, not of God, and does not possess eternal life. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, when we say practice, we're talking about that which characterizes your life. Do Christians sin? Sadly, yes. Do some Christians fall into great sin? Tragically, yes. Do we all stumble in many ways? Daily. What we're talking about here are those who make a practice of it. They're okay with it. They have their religious life, and that religious life offers them the assurance that they're okay, even though they remain in love with self-will run riot. Those who practice such self-will, which is the essence of sin, are of the devil, not of God, and do not possess eternal life. The devil has sinned or exercised self-will run riot from the beginning. If you must have some person, place, or thing, if you must insist on acting in ways that you know may or may not be right, you suspect may not be right, but you insist upon it, you're in trouble. And you can't cover it up with religiosity. God sees right through it. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus once told the Jewish religious authorities, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's John eight forty four. And Jesus said these things to them despite the religious credentials and ethnic heritage of those Jewish religious authorities. You can't mask a sinful heart. You can't justify practicing sin. 
When Jesus spoke to the religious authorities that day, he was speaking truth in mercy. He wasn't acting in vengeance or spite. He was speaking truth in mercy, just as John today, our beloved apostle, is speaking truth to us, to you, to me. Speaking truth in mercy to people greatly deceived about their eternal destiny. And in our text, John would have us not join with those religious authorities who would lead you astray today. John would not have us be deceived and join the untold number numbers of people now in the torments of hell due to that deception. So let's look now at point five, the purpose for which the Son of God appeared, and that was to destroy the works of the devil, says our text. The purpose for which the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What works? Well, first, he is the source, Satan is the source of all damning deception. We just read in John chapter 8, he is a liar and the father of lies, end quote. Second, the devil works through false religion. That's his chief accomplishment. The devil appears to the world not as the devil, but as an angel of light, working through human agents with great credibility, credentials, those who disguise themselves, even, as servants of righteousness, but whose end will be according to their deeds. The Apostle Paul explains this quite thoroughly in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14-15. So, the chief work of the devil is to counterfeit Christianity through people who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. A counterfeit righteousness. Well, what kind of righteousness is that? What does it look like? Well, counterfeit righteousness is a crude righteousness. It's an accrued righteousness that you accomplish, accrue, through religious duty and acts of piety. It can be as simple as assuming that God is better, you are in better favor with God because you went to church this morning than if you had not. Or that somehow you enjoy the blessings of God because you tithed this month as opposed as if you had not. It can be whatever religious practice or duty, how otherwise innocent whereby you assume that somehow you are in better favor with God for having done that duty, having done that practice, than had you not done it. It is a trap. Listen, there's one basis, and one basis alone, upon which you are accepted before God, and that is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Period. So the righteousness that the devil poffers is, an, is not an internal righteousness. 
not a righteousness that transforms the character, renews the mind, produces godly conduct. Rather, it's an external quantitative righteousness. I'm more righteousness, I'm more righteous because I do righteous things. And the more righteous things I do, the more righteous I am. That's the devil's counterfeit righteousness. But it's a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. It cannot transform you. It cannot renew your mind. It cannot change your conduct. It cannot free you from addiction. It cannot heal your marriage. It cannot do anything. It can provide you a nice religious container while you sin. That's it. It's a counterfeit Christianity. Much like the counterfeit Judaism that opposed and killed our Lord and his apostles. But what I want you to hear today is that it is a form of Christianity that does not produce people who practice the righteousness of Christ in their daily conduct. John's concern, once again, is that you know you have eternal life. And you cannot know that you have eternal life merely because you observe a lot of external practices. You know you have eternal life because you practice righteousness from within, inside out. Genuine Christianity, biblical Christianity is lived from the inside out because Christ lives in you, the hope of glory. But false Christianity is a superficial, hollowed-out religion of external activities, rituals, liturgies, practices, all designed to distract and provide false assurance to those lacking discernment. It is whitewashed piety, devoid of any real spiritual life. And it's a deception. It's the great deception. So that's John's message to us in this text. He would not have us be deceived. So let's just take a little summary here in close. It is the concern of the New Testament writers, all of them, including John in our text, that those in Christ walk in the righteousness of Christ and thus know true life and enjoy great assurance. It is the high privilege of every believer to not only know forgiveness of sins and justification before a holy God, but that we also live as Christ lived, in true righteousness of thought, word, and deed, internal a righteousness that flows out of our character. And it is by this we know that we are in him and possess eternal life. Yet there is a devilish scheme afoot, a counterfeit form of Christianity propagated by Satan himself, the old angel of light, that prevents, presents a different form of righteousness and a crude righteousness, a righteousness by works and religious observances, which, in the final analysis, serve only as a cloak for sin.
And since the earliest days of the apostles, the devil has worked to deceive believers into embracing this counterfeit Christian faith. John wrote his letter because there was an alternative gospel circulating that emphasized hyper-spirituality and ignored sin, ignored that even sin even existed. It was all about ascending to a new levels of spirituality. Spiritual experience ruled. The devil successfully advanced in apostate Judaism, which opposed Jesus and his apostles. And throughout church history, the devil has advanced apostate forms of Christianity that also offer the appearances of faith, but listen carefully now, without genuine righteousness. And let me just tell you, the greater the appearances, the less likely, the less likely that is true. The greater the appearances of spirituality, the less likely it is true. Genuine righteousness, genuine spirituality is very natural. We don't have to put on airs. We don't have to dress differently. We don't have to put on robes. We don't have to have statuary. We don't have to have cathedrals. We don't have to have incense. We don't have to have smells and bells. What we need is genuine acts of righteousness brought forth by the very life of Christ himself within us as empowered and enabled by the Spirit. So do not be deceived, beloved. He that practices righteousness is righteous, even as Christ is righteous. Those who appeal through their own righteousness will find no acceptance with God on that final day. Only those in union with Christ and His righteousness will know and enjoy eternal life. And these are known by their fruits, for they practice righteousness. Amen.